Hey, welcome back, everybody, to the 28th episode of the DCVC podcast. I'm your host, Akash Bhatt, and each week I bring you angel investors and venture capitalists investing in tech startups in India. Well, before we get into this week's episode, I wanted to highlight a workshop that's being run by Fire.Fly called Startup Masterclass. Now, I often keep getting messages from young professionals on LinkedIn and Twitter and on emails as well on how to start companies and where should they begin. Well, if you're one of those scratching your head as well, this five-day workshop might just be for you. Fire.Fly is a Bangalore-based learning and development startup focusing on teaching the values of creativity and compassion through offline and online workshops and experiences. You can learn more about this particular workshop on Startup Masterclass by logging on to fire.fly.com. That's F-I-R-E-D-O-T-F-L-Y.com. Now, since we're talking about experiences and how to connect and start your own journeys, Leher App is a social networking platform built around video discussions that connects people around their interests and passions. Now, if you're thinking what you should do with your spare time, look no further than Leher App. The app is available to you on the Play Store and the iOS App Store. Or you can visit the website at www.leher.app to check out more. That's L-E-H-E-R.app. Now on to this week's episode. Today I have with me Vinay Bansal. He is the CEO at Inflection Point Ventures, an early stage angel investing platform. Vinay is a finance professional and a turnaround specialist with over 20 plus years of experience across Fortune 50 companies, private equity and startups. He was a senior advisor at TPG Global and before that CFO and CIO at Wildcraft India. He's a chartered accountant by qualification and spent the first 14 years of his career in leadership positions across financial management and manufacturing supply chain sourcing functions at GE and Hindustan Unilever. I'm excited to share this episode with everybody. So let's head in and listen to Vinay. Hi, Vinay. Super delighted to have you here with me on the podcast today. Welcome to the show. How are you and how have things been in the last few months for you? Thanks, Akash. Uh, appreciate uh, you having us on. Uh, I've been great. Um, you know, from, a, from an environment perspective, I think there's a lot that has changed over the last uh, three to five months. Um, but I think the key piece lies in how do you react to the environment uh, and that's where the real you know results lie uh, so while there's a lot uh, happening outside we have taken a call to see the positive side and continue to work towards some great results so so far um, busy but happy well i couldn't agree more and busy is always great but let's address the elephant in the room covid how has this really impacted both your firm as well as the larger VC industry. What are you seeing and hearing from you, your other colleagues and how the conversations with some of your portfolio companies can unfold it? Sure. Uh, so let me take it in two parts, right? More at a macro, uh, broader VC industry, and then, you know, uh, our firm. Uh, and the second part, uh, you know, about the portfolio. I would say, you know, the first uh, 
three months, which is March, April, and May, uh, we did we did see that individual investors, angel investors stopped cutting checks. Um, I know a lot of VC firms completely put a stop to further funding. They were trying to figure out what's hit them, kind of a black swan event, um, trying to figure out what's next, how long will the you know situation last. Uh, McKinsey sent out uh, a very nice summary saying if it lasts for three months, if it lasts for six months, if it lasts for 12 months, and so on and so forth. Uh, so practically nobody was cutting checks. Uh, but since at IPV we had set up a different DNA, um, we became a lot more aggressive. Um, and you know that's where in the first three months we almost cut like 10 checks. And I think we funded more than uh, maybe 25 crores, which is, uh, you know, which is, let's say, a three to a four million dollar kind of a, uh, investments. Um, and then we, you know, we decided to stay the course uh, with that aggression, uh, as we saw uh, that VCs were not yet opening up doors. Um, what that meant for our portfolio um, was that, you know, we were able to get access to some late stage companies. Uh, some great founders who were in discussions for their Series A, Series B, and Series C discussions, uh, who were now willing to look at uh, us, even though we were a new player um, in the ecosystem. And I think that's where our credibility of helping founders as an ecosystem came in very, very helpful. And we got access to some really good deals. Um, and you know, because they were coming at fair valuation to us, uh, we just kept on grabbing uh, these opportunities. Uh, so as I said, we believe in how we react to a situation uh, and that allowed us to be very nimble yet very aggressive um, and some good returns uh, opportunity for our investors. You're perhaps the first VC firm that I've spoken to who, who are that active. I mean, 10 checks during this period is kind of unheard of. So were these deals across certain sectors or were you just looking across the spectrum and saying, let's look at opportunities everywhere. I'm pretty sure there are deals that might pop up from, you know, even the non-hard sectors and we probably should be very opportunistic at this point and, and look at them and maybe make one or two investments. What was the internal discussions and what was the strategy and uh, how did those conversations kind of lead you to the TED checks that you wrote? So, see, I think at the end of the day, as, a, as an investor, uh, you know, and, and your LPs, uh, being out there, you want to maximize returns for them, right? While being very open yet supportive to the portfolio companies that you fund. Uh, if that's the objective, then one needs to be able to have a strategy that works across various weathers and various scenarios. Um, it just so happened that that point in time, we were able to take a lot of bets uh, based on our earlier defined strategy. Uh, so if you were to say from a bias perspective, yes, because things had changed, we looked at the opportunity in a completely new way. And we did take significant bets, which we thought are gonna be a lot more longer term, given what's changing in the outside environment. Uh, for example, you know, we took bets on uh, edutech companies. You know, we took a bet on UABLE, 
um, very similar to Whitehead Jr., but a little bit wider. Uh, and then we started seeing the impact uh, coming in when you know Whitehead Jr. got announced. Uh, we took, I would say, two or three ad tech company bets, uh, some really good founders. Um, and then we also took bets on essentials deliveries. You know, let's say a milk basket where we took a $2 million bet. Um, uh, and we led the round, actually a series B1 round. Um, and then we took bets on a few more grocery deliveries. We took bets on health tech. Um, you know, as we knew that more and more doctors are gonna be online, more and more patients want to be online, etc. cetera. Uh, these became kind of our favored bets. Uh, but then we continue to take normal bets as well, you know, which were not very specific to this situation. Uh, whether it was Adviso uh, or Fable um, uh, or, you know, a few other deals which were normal uh, situation deals. But again, great businesses run by great uh, founders uh, was uh, our guiding mantra uh, throughout, the, throughout the time period. The other piece, you know, from an internal discussions perspective, as you mentioned, I think we remained very stable headed. Um, I think that was critical and we were in continuous touch with the LPs uh, to be able to, you know, explain to them why we are doing what we are doing and why they should not worry and why we have done the homework. Um, uh, and that will allow us to get some great returns over times to come. Um, and yeah, I mean, that has kind of started to pay off a little bit as well. Um, so, so that's been the thought process broadly. No, I guess it's the right time to leverage tailwinds to continue building robust infrastructures across some of the sectors that you mentioned. So it could be edtech for that matter, could be uh, essential services, or could even be across fintech, right? And we've kind of okay. seen that for a long time, there's been pushback from customers from founders as such in not going and building these tech infrastructures required to really capitalize on the gaps in the market. But I think a good example in the Indian context is, um, you know, the essential online space, you know, digital bill payments, digital lending, and online stock trading, all of these have kind of seen massive investments in the last six months. What would you allude that to? Are you alluding not just from your perspective, let's take in a broader industry conversation here, is this just VC firms looking at certain sectors and saying, all right, we see an uptick. We see that this has kind of been undervalued and under addressed in the past. And this is the right opportunity to, to really back some exciting companies. Or is it more driven by uh, trends and patterns and needs of the society as such? What do you feel is kind of like, driving those decisions at the moment and post COVID will some of these companies continue to have the success that they're having right now? And if not, what kind of advice and conversations do you expect to be having say 12 months down the line? Sure. Um, so kind of three parts to it, you know, how VC see the opportunity, et cetera, um, what kind of companies and therefore post COVID. Uh, see, I mean, I still see VCs not cutting significant checks uh, and still having a little bit of fear. I was speaking to, I think, two VCs yesterday and both have not cut a single check in the last four or five months, right? Um, those that are cutting are very, very cautious. Uh, I have known at least three very large global VC firms that 
have very clearly said we are going to fund only positive gross margin, actually positive contribution margin businesses, right? And therefore positive cash flows. Um, so, so that has definitely made a large impact. In terms of sectors, you know, where they are kind of funding or looking at, I do know that, you know, they have started thinking about it, but the fear that they're still carrying is what happens post COVID, right? Uh, for example, an essentials delivery, will it go away once COVID goes away? Um, you know, uh, a health tech, will doctors come back to physical checkups once COVID goes away? And therefore, are these going to be transitionary? Uh, the place where I'm seeing VCs taking bold bets uh, is on the ed tech piece. You know, uh, some, you know, let's say a deal done on uh, on Whitehead Junior, uh, you know, where Baiju has kind of given a valuation of $300 million. Um, so EdTech I'm seeing uh, VCs going after, uh, more so I think they see it as a more stable businesses and, you know, post COVID should sail through. Uh, on others, my view is I think there is no post COVID time period for me, to be honest. Uh, the way I look at things or we at IPV is what are the things which are going to stay post COVID and which are there today also, right? If, if I'm taking a bet basis, these two parameters, then whether tomorrow COVID stays or not, these businesses should succeed, right? Uh, for example, essentials delivery was there earlier. It's there now. It might reduce a bit, a little bit, but it's not going to go away. The new habits have formed. Uh, you know, my wife used to order only milk basket. Today she orders a Crofarm and an OTP as well for fresh delivery. And I don't think she's changing anytime soon because she's got used to that quality, cost, speed, convenience, uh, etc. Uh, my kids have started uh, classes with UABLE. Uh, you know, somebody's tra training to be uh, an author and somebody else is training to be a coder. Uh, and these guys are loving those classes. I don't think they're going to move away from those classes. Uh, though I'm going to, of course, put them back to a football class or a badminton class once things are normal. Uh, but if these things are great, they'll stick through. Uh, so that's kind of, you know, uh, my view, uh, three to six months down the line, it's going to be a mixed reality, so to say. You know, uh, even my office, we are thinking of making it three or four days a week. Uh, work from home a couple of days. That's where I think the best benefits of both the world uh, comes through. Some online classes, some offline classes, some online healthcare, some offline healthcare. A good mix is going to be the most beneficial uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, for the society and for the people. Well, that's a great point that you made because last year when we see the trend when it came to online shopping or online purchasing of gro groceries, it only amounted to a tiny fraction of the overall grocery sales. And online yeah. systems have trouble telling shoppers exactly what's in stock, what's fresh, what they might be, and what other options exist. Now, what kind of insights do you feel companies can really drive from the current pandemic and kind of use that as an indicator going forward, even if they see a drop off in sales? Are there patterns and behaviors that are emerging right now in, you know, let's just take milk basket as an example. And from your conversations with founders or what you've been seeing internally, 
what are the patterns and behaviors that they're observing right now, which, you know, they can perhaps use and leverage going forward and ensure that even if business and sales drop a little bit, they're really able to tap into the user behavior and, and really create uh, a moat around convenience and uh, really use that to drive the next 12 months post the pandemic, given, you know, things are, things go back to normal as such. Sure. See, I think um, two things here, um, you know, if, if you're looking at now versus let's say new normal. Um, one, I think you rightly pointed out convenience, uh, but I would add to it a customer service and give it a base of a great product. Uh, you know, today people might be buying online grocery because there's no other option, right? Um, but in a normal world, if that other option is better, then they will shift back. Uh, and therefore, I believe that if the companies focus on building a great product, a great service, and super quality, uh, along with customer convenience, then the stickiness is going to be very, very high. It's going to be very difficult for customers to, you know, start spending time in traveling, going to a store, trying to get into the lines to get a billing done, coming back home, spending that much time on grocery. Uh, but if, even if customers have to pay a little bit higher, uh, I would say cost for the convenience, but the product quality and the, and the customer service is great. I think uh, these things are gonna here to stay. And that's what we are seeing in Milk Basket and uh, another company we invested last week, uh, where we are seeing that uh, even though lockdown has opened, people have started moving out, the sales have not fallen. The, the average order value might have dipped 5-10%, uh, but the total number of orders are growing uh, because people have figured out that these are the best ways to do stuff. Uh, you know, personally for me, uh, 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 an anecdote could be you know, we used to have a staff uh, training and a staff meeting, all hands, uh, two meetings in a week. And we were trying to get larger training rooms to get everybody in. Uh, but in this situation, what I realized is that Zoom meetings are great. I mean, you know, people can attend trainings together. I can have almost 60, 70 people attend from anywhere on Zoom and all my uh, you know, my all hands can also be on Zoom. Now I don't need to look for larger training rooms, etc. And he, and these are more effective, to be honest. You know, we can create content, we can record it, and so on and so forth. So we are not going to go back to all hands in one room or, uh, you know, our training rooms uh, to be larger. We are going to shift completely over to uh, Zoom all hands and Zoom trainings. So I think that kind of stickiness uh, will remain as people get used to and and, you know, kind of uh, I would say discover uh, these new great uh, ways of working and ways of shopping. No, I couldn't agree more. This is wonderful information when I, a lot of insights on ground reality and we're kind of supporting our portfolio companies here personally and then letting very similarly about some of the learnings that have come across that you've come across by speaking to your portfolio companies and looking at the broader industry as such it's kind of been resonated here as well and most of the insights that you provided are very much in line with the recent q2 funding reports that i've read about indian vc as well so um, thank you so much for that and on, on that note i think it gives us uh, a good segue into learning a little more about you 
and you know how you came about your whole journey and what kind of led you to uh, IPV. So if you could take us through your career um, and you know highlight some of the key events that led you to where you are today, that would be wonderful for our listeners. So, um, you know, I started, I mean, I'm kind of going very early into my career. Um, you know, I started teaching uh, the younger classes uh, when I was in class 12th. Um, and then, you know, kind of started to figure out how an entrepreneur should be. Uh, and I did that for three, four years, all through college. Um, to an extent that the reputation was such that you could actually teach a class higher. Uh, so that was my kind of, you know, a little bit twist with uh, business and twist with entrepreneurship. And then, of course, I went back to the normal Indian educated middle class where you go and work for large MNCs. Uh, fortunate enough to have worked for Unilever uh, for four plus years learned a lot about operations, factories, supply chain, sourcing, pricing, etc. cetera. Uh, got a lot of exposure to systems uh, and then kind of went into work for GE for 10 years, uh, practically across all businesses of GE globally, uh, would have lived, I would say more than 30 cities uh, in those 10 years that I worked with GE uh, on global assignments. Uh, but you know, my interest in entrepreneurship was always there. Um, and I asked for uh, being the CFO for one of the largest multimodal plant uh, that GE was setting up in Asia. Uh, and I moved my base to Pune to set that up and to even you know, grow that significantly. Uh, and thankfully the company gave me free hand to decide my own pricing, et cetera, for various businesses. And I enjoyed it. Uh, around the same time, um, I was also getting interested in a lot of health startups and started kind of working with those founders, uh, cutting checks and also going through a lot of their pain points together. Uh, that's where I learned how to work alongside the founders and how, you know, not just funding, but also a lot of knowledge and most important, a lot of uh, emotional support was critical in holding founders through tough times. Um, with that in mind, I thought I needed to get a lot more grounding um, and therefore I shifted from a very large company of GE to a very small startup in those days, uh, which was setting up a brand in Bangalore called Wildcraft. Uh, worked with the founders hand in hand, practically ran every part, uh, every function in the company over those uh, few years and grew the company significantly while giving me very hands-on experience of VC investing, fundraising, you know, raising money from banks, opening new shops, handling products, handling finance, investing, taxes, treasury, on ground, retail, distribution, factories, and so on and so forth. A very, very solid, uh, I would say deep, uh, though 24 hours a day kind of uh, working uh, experience. Uh, from there, uh, I chose to go to TPG, which was one of the world's largest private equity fund. Uh, allowed me to play at a much larger scale uh, on various boards uh, and with various uh, large successful entrepreneurs. I would not call them founders, but very large successful entrepreneurs and saw the businesses from a very different angle and saw investing from a very different angle. Uh, having done all of it, you know, I was already developing my own investing acumen. I was reading significantly. I practically read 
I would say all of Warren Buffett's material, all of many other investors have written over the last 200 years um, across startups, across equity investing, across investing in bonds, FX investing, as well as you know, real estate investing. Uh, and I came to know few basic principles uh, that I wanted to test out. One, how should a great business look like? How should the cash flow look like? How should the management and the founders look like? And more importantly, the psychology of investing. You know, when to invest, when not to invest, uh, what valuations, with whom to partner and all that stuff. Uh, and with that in mind, I also learned that helping the founders grow is fundamental to investors making returns. Uh, only when the founders and the businesses become successful, then investors make significant returns. Uh, and that's where my aha moment came that, you know, what if I can improve the startup success rates by 10, 10x? Um, and, you know, with that thesis in mind, uh, we set up Inflection Point Ventures. Uh, at Inflection Point Ventures, therefore, we own the entire ecosystem, you know, right from training the in entrepreneurs to helping them grow, funding them, and more importantly, after funding, hand-holding them uh, through success, including VC relationships and, and follow-on rounds. Um, I also built a very strong network among professionals and CXOs in the country. Uh, that's where I knew most of the knowledge base and the ability to do different stuff uh, across sectors uh, came in. Uh, so that's where, you know, we became a sector agnostic ability to look at a lot more startups, yet very scientifically driven uh, on the three pillars, which we call as, our, you know, the science and the art and the psychology of investing. The science part is more around evaluating great businesses using data, using cohorts, using market sizing, etc. The art part of finding great founders, you know, those who have the vision, leadership, ability to execute, personal passion, um, you know, ability to handle teams, ability to network, and so on and so forth. And then the psychology of investing, which is helping our investors take the right decisions. Uh, and that came through a lot of credibility from our deep business due diligence and a lot of trainings for our investors. Uh, so that is the, you know, I would say um, strategy and the pillars behind IPV, a very, very unique ecosystem, uh, yet very sharply defined. Uh, and that's what has led to, I think, our growth, wherein we have become the largest angel network in the country, um, you know, at a very uh, fast pace, uh, became one of the you know, most active investors. Um, boasting of more than more, you know, about 2,500 investor base uh, within India and globally, uh, more than 50 portfolio companies. Um, and, you know, uh, kind of founders which love the way we work. Uh, so that's kind of my background, my journey leading to, uh, you know, what unique, um, I would say, a company and a unique um, initiative that we are uh, developing uh, out here. That's wonderful. That's quite an extensive background, Vinayat. Thank you so much for sharing that. Plenty to pick from and explore. But let me begin with 
inflection point ventures and the sector agnostic thesis that you have you know at we at scrum ventures as i previously mentioned to you as well are agnostics yep. ourselves in my experience the biggest challenge of being a sector agnostic vc firm is that you don't really have deep expertise in a space i mean of course there are certain sectors that you understand really well uh, than others but the opportunity is that of course i mean you get a, you you get a chance to to place a bet and put your checks into sectors that you think might really do well and at the same time you don't really have too much of expertise in one particular industry as such or an up and coming sector as such for you to really take um an educated uh estimate while while looking at deals and you kind of rely on the team's ability to research and put together all the information or the diligence period to really uh help make the decision whether it's an investment opportunity that might be a viable option or not in your experience how do you view this and what are the challenges you see of being agnostic sure sure absolutely i think returns lies in not taking risk but managing risk right um and therefore taking smart risks so let me cut your uh let me cut my answer into three parts here uh so what i spoke about is the science and the art and the psychology of investing right uh there a sector focus comes is in the mostly in the science part which is understanding the business well but the other two parts which is the art of finding great founders and the psychology of investing are not as much impacted by being sector agnostic so let's go deep into the first part which is the business understanding so the way we manage this risk is our first principle is we always say we may not know enough in any sector and that opens our minds to go after and find people who know enough uh, in that sector and our whole ecosystem and our whole processes are designed uh, at the right at the stage of solving or finding a startup uh, to be able to attract the right subject matter experts in that area uh, so we have a very wide set of uh, i would say uh, set of people who evaluate startups in stage 1 uh and therefore we are typically able to find some decent insights on a business uh, before we say this business we want to you know kind of evaluate further when we evaluate the startup at stage 2 here we open up the business to a lot of lps and our systems are designed to capture the subject matter experts in startups line of business we typically get about 10 to 12 cxos at ceo cfo chro level in the right industries to come in and form a team with us uh, on evaluating that startup so that becomes our team of about 10 to 12 people you know very very deep in their own domain and very well known in that domain where the startup is operating to work with us on a very deep basis stage 3 we not only have evaluated we have worked with the founders these smes have taught us a lot and they finally start forming opinions with us uh whether they are going to support the startups uh, uh by their own investing and therefore they become invested in startups future growth last stage is of action where we invest and we also form a committee uh of about 5 to 6 people who are going to handhold the startup through success now this may in- involve a lot of white spots or white spaces that the startup has which we at ipv can cover for 
if a business is not that great in digital marketing, we'll have somebody very strong in that digital marketing domain within that business area to come in and start working with the founders and so on and so forth. So I think broadly in short, we have a cast a very wide net of very strong subject matter experts uh, who work with us on a regular basis with our systems designed to identify those subject matter experts and our processes designed to work uh, with those subject matter experts even after we have funded the startups. Uh, and we have a process of a you know, monthly review and a quarterly review where all of these guys come together, look at the business from all angles and support their growth. Uh, and that's how I think we have solved for this uh, lack of in-depth knowledge uh, and insights uh, into any given area of business uh, where our startups operate. That's very interesting and extremely unique structure given that it's a very sector agnostic driven firm. Now, given that some of your success also depends on people you surround yourself with, how much of your time is split between building that ecosystem versus looking for, looking for um, exciting startups and helping them build their companies? Sure. Um, so, you know, my work as a CEO and the founder, while I kind of miss working very deeply with the founders, uh, but for a bigger impact and a far more societal and a founder impact, I am responsible for building processes, building sustainable initiatives, where you know I can have thousand copies of myself working with the thousand startups, right? Uh, and that's where I focus my energies on. So if you ask me personally, I would spend about thirty percent to forty percent on building these people connects and building the processes and systems to enable a much larger impact. Another 10 to 20% of my time goes in, you know, working and evaluating initial stage startups, uh, looking at, you know, all the three parts of our, you know, the science, art, and the psychology, uh, still meeting some significant startups and founders. Uh, and the rest of the time goes in developing my own teams, you know, teams who can uh, you know, take on my responsibilities, team who, teams who can align to our culture and values, teams who will take our message and our mission forward, even though we are not there, right? And that's how we make our own copies. Uh, so that's how I would say, you know, largely uh, how I kind of look at my time split uh, to be able to be more sustainable uh, over a long period of time uh, while making a larger impact than I could make personally. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we boast of a large team here, uh, but we are very, I would say, proud of having a much larger team from the outside world that works with us uh, very closely. That's wonderful. You brought this up in the past as well. You you mentioned that hand-holding and providing a lot of support to your portfolio is something that comes unique to you and the firm as such. And yeah. you kind of alluded to that right now as well. Now, you have this very interesting structure or program within IPV, which is called the CXO Genie. Yep. Uh, could you share with us a little more about what that program is, how it operates, and how did that whole thing come about? I think you kind of like mentioned this in the past as well, where you mentioned that you had a lot of industry connects and some of it must have stemmed from there. 
But what is the real value of a program like this and how are your portfolio companies leveraging the, the program that you have? Sure. Um, so to be honest, CXO Genie started first and you know, IPV kind of came along. Um, and so therefore we focused a lot on building capabilities first. Um, so the CXO Genie is a platform where we promise a solution to any given problem in 15 minutes. Um, and these problems have to be brought or have to be faced by CXOs and not lower in the organization. Because then we know that these are really big problems. Um, and you know, what we also learned is that collaboration can help you solve significant problems. You know, all the big consulting firms in the world, they don't solve problems themselves really. They are able to solve problems because they have seen or databased a problem that was solved by somewhere in some industry uh, or at least a part of it and another part of it in another industry and you start connecting the dots. Uh, so with that principle in mind, which is actually, you know, Napoleon Hill's principle of law of success uh, or the concept of mastermind, where he says that where two or more minds come together, working in a harmonious manner, and they start thinking about a problem, then the value of two minds is no longer two. You know, there is a third and a fourth mind that gets created to solve that problem much more effectively. So we put together thousands of CXOs together and say, okay, let's start solving problems for you guys um, in a very high trust environment. Um, so let's say about 600, 700 CFOs have come together in the country to solve their own problems. Now what happens is one CFO has a problem, he posts it on the platform, some other CFO has seen it, solved for it, he helps out. Um, and tomorrow the next CFO has a problem, somebody else comes and helps out. And all of that has to happen within 15 minutes. Now when that happens, and you know, I have got five problems of mine solved, I have a very high affinity to that network. Uh, because when nobody else could help me, even my own company could not have those resources, uh, you know, this peer network solved. Uh, and you know, the way it works is very, very amazing. So we built a few such uh, CXO networks around. Uh, and therefore we've built very deep functional capability uh, in every network while that cut across multiple, uh, I would say sectors or industries and geographies, et cetera. Uh, and then, you know, recently we launched something called Founders Genie as a part of uh, CXO Genie platform. What we did here is we said, okay, here we are gonna have thousands of founders come together. We have the platform, we have the technology uh, to solve problems for each other. And we bolstered it with some of the very well-known experts that we knew in various areas where founders can't solve for each other. These experts jump in for the last 10% of the problems to solve it for the founders, uh, right? That gives a very unique ecosystem to the founders. So now with this kind of a expert ecosystem available, when our funded startups at IPV need help, you know, the help is at hand and we know any problem can be, uh, be discussed and kind of solved uh, or strategized within about 15 minutes. And that forms a very strong basis for us to be able to handhold our startups for a long period of time.
because this network is very, very solid. Uh, and this platform provides a very solid foundation to our sector agnostic yet uh, very deep, uh, I would say, uh, pulling up of the knowledge uh, as and when required. Uh, a corollary could that be, or a, or an anecdote could be, you know, when you search something on Google, uh, you know, Google has its algorithm to give you the right links and the information uh, to be able to solve what you're looking for. Uh, Google cannot have very niche and deep, uh, you know, information which this network can bring in uh, to solve a very difficult management, leadership, execution, technology, or even, you know, uh, I would say a regulatory problem. Uh, so that's how our CXO Genie network kind of works hand in hand um, with the Inflection Point Ventures funded startups or even non-funded startups as a part of Founders Genie. Now, all these are great initiatives, Vinay, and we have a very similar mentor-driven program, which provides mentorship or business development opportunities for our portfolio companies. And I really, really like how you put it, two minds coming together is no longer just two. The power of network cannot be commended enough. And we've kind of seen that in, in the past as well. Yeah. How hard is it for you to track and measure the success internally when you're setting up these meetings or ending up um, facilitating these conversations between the CXOs and your portfolio companies? How do you track them? How do you measure them? And at the end of the day, how do you validate and say if this model is working or not? Sure. Uh, I think one of the rules I've learned early on, you know, with my very in initial young age uh, business, uh, I would say, endeavors, is that to be a successful investor, you should have had seen the world from three angles. And not just seen, but probably practiced and, and you know, have had a working knowledge, which is one in having run the businesses uh, and know how businesses work, what it takes to run a business. Um, number two is tried your hand at investing, because then you know the art and the psychology part of investing. And third is in scaling up teams and working with people and relationships. Right. Only when you kind of do all three, you know, work areas, then you're becoming a great investor because all three are very important in, uh, in running. And what I've learned is that anything to be tried, you should always have a goal in mind and you should always measure it by impact or measure it by outcomes. Uh, once you start designing stuff with an outcome in mind, things and measurement metrics become clear. Now, coming to directly to your answer, when we designed CXO Genie, we said any answer, any problem has to be solved in 15 minutes. That's the measurement. And we measure it every month. Uh, how, what percentage of problems got solved in 15 minutes? Uh, and then we have, you know, what we call as the incentive systems behind, right? We have a small, um, you know, leaderboard engine that runs, which incentivizes solutioning in 15 minutes. And similarly, on the startup side, when we are engaging people, uh, our measurements are actually at the end of the day, what IRR do we make on our investments, right? Uh, through exit. And when we get some great IRRs, we have a way to look back. We have a very strong scorecard system, which is very standardized across all our portfolios. 
and we have a way to look back and say, okay, if this return came in this startup, what were the four or five critical points that made it happen? And usually you would see that uh, 80 to 90% of the startups, when they went through tough times, somebody held their hand. And that somebody was outside the startup and a part of the network. When startups faced a tough hiring problem, somebody came in and interviewed the right resource. Uh, when the startup you know, needed advice on which of the two or three paths to take, a subject matter expert came in and you know, asked the right questions to the founders to enable them to train as well as to help them see the right path. And we continuously see that you know, uh, these interventions uh, have helped our founders go faster, go stronger, go confident, and therefore be more successful. At the end of the day, our goal is simple. We want the startup success rate to go up by 10x in IPV. And you know, just to quote a number, out of the 50 portfolio companies we have invested, or let's say about 50, 48 or 50, all 48 or 50 are live today. None of our investments has shut shop. Uh, and we believe that a lot of our work that we do with founders and handhold them enables us to give them the right direction or pick them up when they're down and out. Um, so, you know, these two or three large broader measurements, but we have very deep measurements to each of these three pillars, so to say. Now, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for highlighting some of the, uh, some of the tracking and, and benchmarking measurements uh, at IPV. Now, I think a great segue here would be to talk about the firm and the firm's relationship with its LPs. I'm, try, I'm very curious in trying to explore that aspect. And I want to understand some of the lessons that you've learned both from portfolio construction and from measuring the returns and success of your portfolio companies. Now, when you have conversation with your LPs, how do you address these conversations? What are some of the ways that you maintain cadence with your investors on a regular basis? And what kind of, um, you know, how, how best do you leverage their network so that you can add more value to your portfolio companies? If you could highlight a little more on that, I think that would be great. So, I mean, I can actually summarize the answer in one word. And that one word is trust. Mm -hmm. um, you know, when we start building trust-based relationships, both at an LP end and then at a founder end, you know, the story becomes a lot more consistent and story becomes a lot more easier to execute. Um, you know, to build or work on a high trust environment, what is important is that we work with trustworthy partners, uh, both sides, again, you know, at the LP end as well as the portfolio end. So let me first take the LP end. Uh, the way we started developing the DNA for our LPs is we said we would prefer professionals uh, who have achieved something in their life and have worked in a professional environment. Uh, and therefore, we are known as the only network in the country, probably globally, which prefers a very professional set of investors. You know, they might be working in large companies, they have run businesses, they have grown businesses, they understand the value of trust, they understand the value of transparency, 
they understand the value of data and they understand how tough is it to run businesses because they have run the businesses or their own functions very well. Um, and therefore, a lot of our LPs are very smart. They are very deep in their work and they understand the value of professionalism and trust. So we are known as a kind of a, 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 a network which lets entry only for the best of the class, right? Uh, and that has built a very high level of aspiration among people to be a part of IPV. Second is, we do not do any sales effort or reach out to LPs ourselves. We have a way where LPs refer LPs, uh, right? And therefore we get the like-minded set of people and a much higher level of trust and a much higher quality of LPs. Uh, the third pillar on the LP side is, we help them save time because these are busy professionals. We give them very deep information and a very deep business due diligence reports, which are time bound and very professional. And we build trust with them by keeping their interest in our hearts. Uh, and that's how I think uh, that has been visible to our LPs for them to put that trust in us, right? Otherwise, we would not have been able to cut these large checks in this period. Um, you know, if they don't trust us. Now coming to the portfolio construction again, the second pillar, which is the art of investing, lies very deep in finding great founders. Uh, and that's where, you know, we build deep relationships and we work with founders that we know will want to work with us, will be willing to exploit the expertise we carry, will be willing to take feedback, will be willing to improve every day, right? That is a kind of a, a written rule here when we work with great founders. Now, what that happens is because these founders are willing to learn, we are able to set a quarterly cadence for every founder with all of our of, of their investors. Uh, and therefore, you know, the cadence for investor and a founder is minimum, uh, you know, one time in three months, it could be more and builds a very good rapport both sides while helping the found, founder and the business succeed. From our side, for LPs, we have a weekly rhythm, wherein you know, we do some educational stuff with our investors. Um, you know, we will reach out for something or the other, uh, but at least once a month, uh, there will be a broader update uh, to our investors and through multiple mediums, our own app, uh, WhatsApp bot, uh, email, uh, Zoom calls, etc. Uh, so that's the kind of uh, you know very well structured rhythm uh, out there, both with portfolios as well as uh, with our LPs and, and you know the pieces around cadence uh, that you wanted to know. That's wonderful. I mean, I've been trying to like explore this topic a little more on my podcast just to understand how GPs are having conversations with their with their LPs. And what is the requirement from the LP side? Because most, most VC firms, as you may know, will have an LPAC, they'll have a weekly cadence or a monthly cadence with their, with their LP network as such. What is really important is I wanted to understand how VC firms in India really leverage their, um, the network that they have, especially from an LP perspective, especially if they have LPs who are situated in India and those who are not in India as well. It's very interesting to see how they can really leverage and manage both expectations and really tapping into some of the 
larger assets that they have at their disposal. And you kind of like threw a lot of light on some of the best practices with respect to that. Is there anything that a new or, or somebody who is setting out their uh, first fund today, somebody who's fairly young, somebody who's, who's, who's setting out their um, first fund needs to know about LP communications. You did mention trust, which is extremely important, but when it comes to compliance and when it comes to reporting, is there anything that is a must do and there are things that they should avoid? Sure. Um, see, I think there are two perspectives. One is, you know, many of the Indian VC firms have their LPs outside India, right? Um, whether it is Sequoia, whether it is Matrix, you know, a lot of the money comes from outside India and a very few homegrown firms as well. Um, and there, you know, you have their LPs as um, family offices or HNIs, etc. Um, from a, I would say, making sure you do the things right. I mean, I think the errors happen on both sides, which is error of omission and error of commission. Uh, I think the commission piece is easy, which is compliance, you know, where you knew what you needed to do, uh, you should do it. And it's easy to manage by hiring the right teams. They know what needed to be done, whether it is SEBI reporting, whether it is compliance reporting, whether it is you know, LP reporting, et cetera, et cetera. I think the bigger piece is the error of omission, which is what you have not told was not required, but should have as a part of building the trust. Uh, you know, what I should, what is the bad news that I should still pass on to the LPs? What should I not hide? Uh, and so on and so forth, right? Uh, and that I think is very critical. And that's why we get our founder directly in front of our LPs. So that, you know, they hear from the horse's mouths. Um, in the larger firms, I think this happens on a select case-to-case -case basis. I may not be able to speak on others' behalfs. I've not worked in many large firms that way, um, but a handful. Uh, but, you know, where there are tough portfolio companies, you will get a weekly or a monthly update. Uh, otherwise, usually it's a rhythm of a month or a quarter where you give a portfolio level update. Um, but if uh, your LPs have co-invested, then they may want to be on the investor calls, et cetera, or, or even the uh, rhythms with the, uh, with the portfolio company. So very wide uh, from that perspective. Uh, but to sum, sum it up, I would say, keep the trust, keep the relationships. Uh, and you know, relationships are often based on trust. Um, so for a new person setting up there, meet as many people you can, build some honest relationships so that when you have to leverage them, uh, they will come through uh, for you uh, and continue to harvest and grow them through your results. Uh, then, you know, other things fall in place. If the businesses are doing well, results are fine. Uh, people will trust you and people will, you know, give you more leeway. That's wonderful, Varana. That note, I think we can enter our last segment, which is a lightning round or a rapid fire where I'm going to shoot some questions at you and sure. uh, try and explore the investor personas and uh, get into a little more personal side of you if you're okay with that. Happy to. Let's try. Awesome. So I think you mentioned this in the past as well. And if you were to isolate one period job or stint that you had in the past that kind of shaped your career, which would it be and how did that impact you very quickly? Sure. I would pick up 
you know, my work at GE um, as a part of their most premium program called Corporate Audit Staff. Um, you know, where we would work on very large company-wide problems, global usually in nature, and you are required to work almost 19 to 20 hours a day, seven days a week, um, and in very high stress environments. I think that kind of taught me how to be effective, uh, yet composed and stay sane while working very difficult projects. Uh, I think the learnings from that stint within GE, um, uh, I think has shaped the way I am, the way I work and the way I think and the way I strategize um, and the way I lead uh, the teams. That's awesome, that's great. Now, what is the hardest part of being a CEO or a GP at a firm? Sure. I think the hardest part of a CEO's job is how to do the right thing um, without, uh, or even at the cost of being unpopular. Uh, and therefore, one should always be clear what one needs to get done, why that is important, and how to keep your sanity and work with the team uh, while keeping them charged. That's amazing. How have you personally evolved as a person and an investor in the last few years? I would say significantly. Um, you know, if I don't evolve, then I'm not learning and I'm not growing. And, you know, that will impact uh, the broader uh, set of stakeholders. Uh, I have become, I think, a lot more patient. Um, you know, uh, and I'm trying to be uh, even more, I guess. Uh, because as you grow, you work with a very large set of people and a very broad range of personalities. Uh, and therefore, keeping your sanity while uh, working with this broad range uh, and keep and still continuing to do the right thing. Uh, I think that is the largest part. And therefore, you know, as I kind of grow year by year, I think more important is to know you more, know yourself better than trying to know the outside world. Uh, change yourself more than trying to change the outside world. Uh, outside world will come along uh, as you take your right paths. Now that's wonderful. Is there anything that you'd like to change about the Indian VC ecosystem? Um, I think um, if I was to change uh, anything about the VC ecosystem, I would say is to be able to take more independent and more, uh, uh, you know, unbiased bets. Uh, I still see a little bit of a fear of missing out, uh, a little bit of that VC is doing, therefore we should be doing it. Uh, and I'm talking more broader ecosystem. There are some great VC firms who take that independent mindset right. uh, and an independent evaluation. Um, but I see when the sector is hot or a deal is hot, everybody is running after it. Uh, so that I think is, is a piece uh, to be changed and uh, more of the VC should have more Indian uh, authority to take their calls versus trying to get to their IRCs uh, back 
in the US or back in the countries uh, where they're based. So I think that those two pieces probably will evolve with uh, results and more trust being built on their Indian counterparts. Now, since you're agnostic investors, is there one sector that you're bullish on right now outside of the ones that you previously mentioned? Well, um, I mean, that's a difficult question, but let me still, while I would say that we are continuously looking after great businesses and great founders, etc. Um, for now, what we think, the way the things have changed a little bit, um, I would say essentials as a category, I think um, uh, is gonna do well. That is kind of undervalued right now, um, but there's a huge legs for growth, uh, you know, now coming for the online uh, based space. Um, and I would say also health tech uh, has a lot of uh, inefficiencies that need to be fixed uh, through our entire preventive health to curative health to healthcare systems to insurance to uh, how our hospitals run. Uh, they can be a lot more effective. That's a great point. Now, lastly, if you were to advise startups who are raising money during this period, what would that piece of advice be? I think it's simple and straightforward, right? Uh, go for uh, 18 to 24 months of runway, figure out what you want to do, uh, make sure uh, you are solving a great problem uh, uh, and that uh, you're solving it the right way and the most effective way. Um, uh, I would say if you have a great product, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the word of mouth will spread automatically uh, and you won't need to spend too much on marketing or burn too much there. Uh, so focus on the right product and focus on having the runway uh, for uh, 18 to 24 months, um, the product market fit with a little bit of uh, marketing will help you uh, stay on course. That's wonderful, Vinay. Thank you so much for your time. I had a blast getting to know more about uh, IPV as well as your perspectives on the industry and what you've been looking at for the last six to 12 months as well as the broader picture as since you've been part of uh, IPV as such. Um, this has been a great chat. Thank you again. and. Uh, you know, look forward to bringing you on the podcast at some point in the future and perhaps discuss the world after the pandemic and some of the insights that you might be able to then share based on some of the investments that you've made during this period. Happy to us, Akash. Thanks a lot for taking the time and I really enjoyed the conversation as well. So that brings us to the end of our 28th episode. Another great guest bringing you insight from the world of venture capital and angel investing. Thank you so much, Vinay, for your perspectives. I thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. And if you're like me and you enjoyed the episode as well, do hit the subscribe button or go ahead and rate and review the podcast. It really does help. Now, before I leave you, don't forget to check out Fire.Fly. It's a Bangalore-based learning and development startup focusing on teaching, the values of creativity and compassion through offline and online workshops and experiences. Their latest workshop title, Startup Masterclass, is the perfect introduction for first-time founders or anyone interested in entrepreneurship. So do go ahead and check out what they do on fire.fly.com. That's F-I-R-E-D-O-T-A-F-L-Y.com. And while you're at it, if you're thinking what you want to do with your spare time, look no further than Lehead App. 
It's a social network built around video discussions that connects people around their interests and passions. The app is available to you on the Play Store and the iOS App Store, or you can visit their website at www.lehr.app. So thank you so much for joining in, everybody. I will bring you another great guest next week. So until then, stay focused, stay safe, and keep hustling.